Hey, Anna. Hey, Mike. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Here's to 2023. Oh, God. It's got to be better in 2022 and 21 and 20. Please. <laughs> yeah. Please go mm. on. <laughs> yeah. how, are you, how are you feeling today? Yeah, so um, not too bad. I mean, I stayed in, you know, because of the fireworks. Um, I always spend uh, New Year's Eve at home. But we had a lovely time just watching a bit of the old Netflix. Well, very good, very good. Well, this being New Year's Day, new start, but I haven't quite started new work yet. So we thought we would, again, go back to the vast archive of a dog's life and bring one of our, well, actually, it is our most popular episode. And for the people who are new to the show and haven't had a chance to listen to, we thought, hey, start the new year with this absolutely fabulous episode. Well, I couldn't agree more. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Karen Becker and Rodney Habib about their landmark book called The Forever Dog, which fuses all the latest science uh, about how to keep your dog hopefully living forever. Here we go. I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. You know I watch what you eat very carefully. That's because I love you and Prudence very much. And I'm lucky that I have the training to know what's the best diet for you. But not every pet parent has that training. So that's why we're jumping on Zoom to talk to Rodney Habib in Nova Scotia and to one of my heroes, Dr. Karen Becker in Arizona about their best-selling new must-have book, The Forever Dog. Dr. Karen Becker and Rodney Habib, how excited am I that you guys are on a dog's life? Welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having us. We're equally as excited. Oh, we are. Well, Dr. Karen, I've seen a lot of you. You are the most popular vet on the internet, the most widely read, I believe. And I know from my point of view, as having studied with the College of Integrated Veterinary Therapies, that I learned so much from you, from your, your blogs and, and your video interviews. And really, since 2000, you've uh, made a quest to help educate and empower pet owners, pet parents, I should say, to be health advocates or longevity junkies. <laughs> I have done that. And I have done that because, of course, having my own animals and being obsessed with having them not just here for as long as possible, but as healthy as they can be, if I can keep my animals above the level of disease, they will be happier and I will be able to enjoy them longer. So that's logical for me as a pet parent, first and foremost, it's extra logical for me as a wellness proactive veterinarian to partner with my clients, to help them intentionally create health through wise lifestyle choices. And then of course, on a much larger social media platform, for all of those people who love their animals just as much as I do, but may not have access to the information on exactly how to go about becoming an advocate for their animals, that is a passion of mine through teaching and educating. I believe that if all of us have the tools we need to make better choices, the end result will be healthier animals. So that has been my passion since I, since I became a proactive veterinarian, which was day one. I knew going to vet school that this, that this was my goal and my passion. And now I just need to convince the world that we need to switch from this reactive model of waiting till disease occurs to proactively preventing disease from occurring. And that really is not just my life mission, but that's exactly what the forever dog book is about. 
Yeah, absolutely. We love prevention rather than cure. Um, now, Rodney, oh my, you're an internet celebrity, um, an author, <laughs> and you're, you know, you've got global acclaim really for your blogging and your video making, which is astonishing. And you're also an animal activist. Your Planet Paws is the most liked and visited pet health page on Facebook. So my, you know, what, what's your driver also as co-author of The Forever Dog? I think my biggest drive, first of all, thank you. Awesome. Every time I hear my own intro, it's just like I start shaking my head. I, I just feel like definitely not worthy of any of those things. It's just an incredible, <laughs> it's an, it's, it's just an incredible sort of testimony to all the pet parents that are just looking for information. I'd love to say, I always say the same thing. I always love to say it's me, but I know it's information, right? We all want our dogs to, to live forever. And of course, that's the biggest driver for me with my dogs. The always the biggest question that I would always ask, you know, when, when two people bump into each other in a, in a dog park, um, aside from what's your dog's name, it's like, oh my God, how old is your dog? It's always been such a huge question for me. And I remember when I got Sammy, my first dog, that was one of those questions that I, I had to answer. And, and when, you know, when I started doing research and I started to see all these long lived dogs over the world, I was like, this is what I want to achieve for my dog, which then ultimately became my biggest driver for relaying information. And then of course, you know, I've made several mistakes, which you know I've spoken about so many times over the years with my animals, and and those are the same mistakes that I don't want anyone else to to have to go through. No, I don't want anybody to ever say, "If I only knew then what I know now." So, I guess you could say my drive for citizen science, being able to work with researchers and scientists and helping spreading their message, right? Because I think that's one of the big things for people today that say, hey man, you know, I'd really like to be able to do that, but I'm not sure how. Um, there are so many scientists out there, Anna, that would just, you know, they don't have the communication skills, the social media skills. They'd love to be able to sort of partner up with people. So um, hopefully somebody who's listening to this podcast can hear that and it might give them the drive and them the push, you know, to want to reach out to to these researchers and help share their information. So that's that's has always been my biggest driver, the dogs and the information. Yeah, no, fantastic. Well, you know, information is power. I couldn't agree more. I mean, my miniature bull terrier that's just chomping beside my feet here on a, on a yak chew um, is named Prudence. A great name, I know, for an English bull terrier, you know, perfect, but it has a double <laughs> meaning. This time, I'm prudent. I made mistakes. And the guilt, you know, that uh, yeah. you... Yes, we both, we all agree. And I think this is the inspiration. So health age is it all genetic or is it a bit like with behavior a lot is nurture or can we can we prevent genes from expressing themselves in different ways like if your mom had diabetes does it mean that you're going to get diabetes such a great question and it's so empowering to know that the vast majority of what dictates our health and well-being, Anna, is in fact the epigenetics, which means the environment that our DNA is in, actually whispers to our DNA to turn on or turn off these genetic predispositions. So it's super empowering to recognize that our choices as wellness and health advocates for our dogs 
play in mightily to their ability to either suppress genetic predispositions that we don't want to be expressed, or we can indeed, let's just say that you have done genetic testing on your dog and there are some things lurking. I did DNA testing on my dog and he has the predisposition for progressive retinal atrophy. He's got one of the gene copies that could put him at risk for this eye degeneration condition. It was so empowering to know that because now I can put into place a protocol that will help nurture his retina and support and prevent degeneration from occurring. So I was very empowered to learn about my dog's predispositions. So just because we have genetic predispositions doesn't mean that we're a victim to our genetics. And that's the most beautiful. And I think one of the most inspiring things that was really reinforced when we spoke to some of the world's top geneticists is that there's so much that can be done if you're aware of what those pre-genetic, you know, uh, epigenetic triggers are. So those include Anna nutrition, including your polyphenol intake, which means those are those, those food-based antioxidants that are very powerful in terms of slowing down aging and, dege and degeneration cellularly. Chemical ingestion, which means our dog's environmental chemical load and how much chemicals they're eating and absorbing into their system play into their DNA epigenetic expression, as well as radiation exposure and environmental pollution. So we have control over all of those things. The only time we don't have control is if there's been genetic deletions, Anna. And genetic deletions mean that we have, even to today with puppy mills, we're breeding brother and sister and father and daughter. When we have ruined some of the gene pools by narrowing them to the extent that dogs are just plain missing genes for good health, those dogs will automatically guaranteed express those genetic missing pieces because they don't have the genes for healthy eye function, or they don't have the genes for healthy heart function. That is where reparative breeding comes in for the vast majority of us that are not breeders. It is very good to know that we are in control of 80% or more of our dogs epigenetic expression. And so view that as a point of power and not a point of fear. It's really interesting because as, as pet parents, and just to add on to what, you know, all the incredible stuff that Dr. Becker just said, as <laughs> pet parents, it's, you know, there's things that, of course, we have control of and there's things that we don't have control of, right? And for me, I guess the early driver, especially when it came to health span and lifespan, I was always under the impression that if I fed the best food in the world, when I first started this journey, my dogs were ultimately going to live as long as possible. I knew that there was like chemical stressors that I could also avoid, but I was so convinced that nutrition was everything and nutrition is a lot of it it's a lot of it but i think a lot of pet parents today you know where the focus seems to be just primarily solely on nutrition they start to miss out on so many things one of the things that was really crazy for me is talking about genetics and dr karen becker you know was, was touching on it was telomeres you know it's something that you know we just lightly touched on in the book it was something that really freaked me out when we sat down with the scientists when they were, you know, Dr. Laura Fick from here in Calgary, in Canada, those researchers were doing studies on telomeres with dogs. And they were able to show that the ends of the telomeres, and I mean this in the most layman way possible, like the little, if you imagine your um, shoelaces, the little plastic tip on the end of your shoelaces, yeah. that would basically be the example of a telomere. Did you know that scientists can measure that and at a specific yeah, so explain telomeres, because isn't it when they get long, they become dangerous, or is it the other way around? Well, that's that's such a great question, right? And of course, I'm not an expert by any means in telomeres. But from what I understood was, 
Yes, there is getting them too long. And I believe, and don't quote me on this, but I believe that if they are too extended, what happens is eventually cancer develops, if what I can remember from when we sat down with the scientists. But as they get shorter, it shortens the actual lifespan of your dog. What was eerie to me was that they were able to measure the telomeres of your dog. So for instance, you go in, you send in some blood work, they measure the telomeres. They could, today in science, according to Dr. David Sinclair, they can actually tell you how many years you're actually gonna live for by the length of your telomeres. And, and that was something that was just mind boggling. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, they can't tell you the exact day that you're gonna pass, maybe <laughs> not the exact month, but they can give you a range. And they started to measure the length of these telomeres when it came to like beagles and German shepherds and so on and so forth. And they were able to narrow down like to the year of how long these dogs were supposed to live. Like that's where we are right now today when it comes to genetics and health and lifespan. This is one of the many things that's out there. But I can tell you there's some things that were so mind blowing for me, th things that I've never really talked about. And something that really I don't wanna know, like I, if somebody told me today I could send in my dog's telomeres and, and have them measured and they give me a prediction, it's one of those things where I wanna be able to do my best and not know that information. But that's where we're headed with health span and lifespan today. Yeah, but it's interesting, but surely these tests that you could do means that you could act proactively and prevent Preventatively. Yes. Yeah, Karen. Yes. I mean, surely. Yeah. I mean, something that struck me as Molly, uh, my first miniature terrier, she she sadly got uh, bladder cancer and it was difficult to diagnose because I wouldn't do the biopsy because it was a very invasive operation that may have killed her in itself. Um, and she would have been incontinent and I, I couldn't bear it. And so we just worked to support cancer through, throughout, you, you know, Karen, how you, how you would do that. But something I noticed you touched on in the book, so I couldn't believe at the time that with all this modern medicine, we couldn't test with a blood test yes. that you, yes. you you have cancer right but now in america you can you can do this is this true it's true the new q test there's all of these amazing new non-invasive diagnostics that give pet parents and veterinarians more tools to not just be proactive, but to identify these predispositions and to actually have time when there are cellular changes, but not yet structural changes. That is when the most powerful intervention can happen. So if you, the, the only downside is Anna, of course, these tests cost money, but if you are capable of doing the tests, it opens up a brand new level of proactive care in the sense that we can identify when there are literally cellular changes going Going on, which is uh, years ahead of when we get a final diagnosis by the time that there are structural changes enough for a, a tumor or something to be physically noticed by a veterinarian. I don't want to say we're too late, but we are definitely fighting a very much uphill battle. Identifying changes at the cellular or biochemical level is exactly where science is headed. And it's quite inspiring to be a part of this because it gives us the opportunity to intervene earlier. Yes, because that's kind of the difference, isn't it, between humans and dogs. We we can express because um, you know we're we're feeling a bit weird. Um, you know, I've got pain somewhere that I don't normally have, and you can ring your GP and you know get it investigated. But dogs can't tell us that, you know. Um, so I guess the cells deteriorate for longer, so making any treatment of cancer in dogs more precarious than with early diagnosis on a human level. Because there's a lot of parallel in this book between human health and dog health, right? 
there's a lot. And one of the things that we were so excited about, Anna, that's one of the ways we got these brilliant top tier Nobel prize winning scientists to open their door. We had been told by many people, listen, y'all are veterinarians. And like, we understand that you have a, you know, you've got big platform with people listening to you, but you typically these top tier scientists, their doors are closed and they speak to another, but they're not probably going to talk to you. We sent, I sent emails and said, listen, you're a dog lover. And I can see that you are using dogs as a representation of human health models and aging. We are dog lovers too. And do you know that these amazing scientists, because they are dog lovers, every single one of them was not just interested in giving us an interview, but showed us their data and the new information they're looking at. And they're using dogs as sentinels as aging models for longevity because the human and dog lifestyle and disease model is nearly identical. So that has been fantastic for us. We're able to take this information from these top tier scientists and plug and play into our dog's well-being now. And that's one of the things that we were so excited to get this information into everyone's hands is because it's so empowering to recognize how much can be done when our one and a half to two-year-old dog is bouncing off the walls and hyperactive. There's no way you would ever think about biologic rusting occurring in their cells, but you will after you read the book. And that's when it's a perfect time when your dog is young and vibrant to maintain telomere length, to maintain cellular oxidation pathways, to maintain antioxidant potential within your dog's body, to do these common sense, easy, simple strategies that help you buy insurance that your dog will continue above the level of disease and potentially have a significantly longer lifespan. And that's yeah. one of the biggest problems with pet parents is that you, a lot of them wait till something breaks down and then they'll go in to do something. There was a study that came out of your way and on, on your side of the pond from the United Kingdom that showed that when a pet parent takes their dog into a veterinarian to have something diagnosed, they're usually diagnosed with two or more issues. It's not just the one issue. So a lot of people will wait till something breaks down before they go see their vet. And that's usually what typically happens when people say, hey, you know, I really want my dog to live a very long time. They you around age eight, nine or 10, well, you know, when the joints start to get creaky, when the dog starts to develop arthritis, that's usually nine times out of 10 when the pet parent acts and says, hey, I think I got to start bringing in some joint support. Hey, I really want my dog to live, you know, a lot longer. So I'm going to add a few of these supplements and health extend it. And just like as Dr. Karen Becker said, you got to start early if you're looking for life extension. Same thing with a human. Scientists will tell you today as a human, you want to start in your 40s. You don't want to start in your 70s or your 80s and say to yourself, hey, I'm going to try to push myself to be 100. You've got to start early. But I will say this, Anna, when we interviewed Dr. Sachin Panda and I said, listen, I just adopted a 12 year old dog. Should I just give up? And he said, oh my goodness, no. He said, what you have to remember is that any cellular intervention started at any age can dramatically improve health span and right. extend lifespan. So he said, listen, if you adopt an 18 year old cat, get on it. If you adopt a 15 year old dog, never give up with the intention of improving your dog's quality of life, because all that we know now and all of the science demonstrates that you can still really help improve lifespan and health span intervening at any point in age. Which is really important, I guess, you know, we all love to adopt and bring in a rescue. I, I have a little English toy terrier here licking a stag antler, actually. He has leg calf's purse disease, Karen. Now, when I took him on, I didn't know about this and I didn't know he'd had his left hip joint removed already. All I could see was there was a lot I didn't know about this dog. Anyway, as things unraveled, you know, um, I was fortunate 
to be living very close to a famous animal physiotherapist, Karen. I know you're really into physical therapies as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she said, Anna, we have the technology, you know, because um, there was no way the vet actually said to me, Anna, before you get attached, send him back. And I mean, I can't do that. So little Mr. Binks has been on a lot of green lip muscle from the moment I I got him, a lot of homeopathy, a lot of acupuncture, and indeed red light therapy more recently, actually. But but we kind of digress, but you can, that's what I mean. And and, and I think there's going to be a lot of dogs going into animal shelters after, you know, this puppy pandemic craze. So I think it's important for pet parents to understand so much can be done particularly, I think, Karen Hay on this one, with behavior and understanding how stress is, as you wonderfully say in the book, is emotional contagion. Explain that a little bit more as an environmental stressor. Stress is a stressor. So there is all different types of stress that impact dogs in very powerful ways. There's, of course, mental, emotional stress that can lead to anxiety and a whole host of behavioral issues. But then there is environmental stress. And within the environmental stress category, we have home chemical stressors. So things in and around our home that we have outdoor chemical stressors that impact our dog's well-being and stress level. And then we have veterinary chemical stressors. So when you think about emotional, mental, indoor chemical, outdoor chemical, and veterinary stress, our dogs are literally being hit from every angle with stress. And one of, and the emotional mental aspect, we were really uh, shocked to learn that this emotional contagion, where if humans are high anxiety, high stress, or not feeling good, that our dogs are capable of not just picking up on our emotions, Anna, they're capable of our emotions altering their physiology. They have increased cortisol release. And so if we are in a high stress environment, you know, I have some of my clients say, I never fight around the dog and we never raise our voice. And even though I have anxiety, I never show it in front of my dogs. I have bad news from the top scientists around the world. Your dogs know anyway. I and believe because, Karen gets what, yes. oh, sorry to cross you there, but I, I have this thing, you cannot lie to a dog because mm-hmm. of their great olfaction, right? So they can smell cortisol. It's been proven that dogs do smell fear. It's not an old adage. That's exactly right. And Rodney can jump in and talk a little bit about when we visited Dr. Biagio, uh, we were able to actually watch those initial experiments go down in his lab. Yeah, it was, What I mean, what a big giant eye opener for us. And, you know, that study that when it was published a few years back, it literally broke the internet that not only could your dog smell your emotions but that they would also turn into those emotions they would become those emotions within seconds according to those researchers and and yes as you were mentioning Anna about cortisol scent that term you know what is it exactly they're smelling according to Dr. Biagio they call it chemo signals and chemo signals are basically I mean if I had to laymanize it if you took your entire day and you were to bundle it up and package it and then put it inside like a a drop of sweat, that's basically what your dog is smelling, just how your day went through sweat. And those chemo signals have never been more important. Um, One of the things that was an eye-opener for me was at the same time in Italy, there was another study that was published that showed that, you know, one one of the, the, the downfall to, I shouldn't say the downfall, the part that I wish that there was more science on, and Dr. Biagio was look, actually looking for more funding on it, is actually what happens after your dog smells the stress and then becomes stressful. Of course, they show the typical heart rate elevation, the panting, the excessive drinking, and so on and so forth. But our 
big question was, what is the long-term ramifications of it? Because if we could nail down the long-term ramifications, of course, we could use this to sort of inspire households to be a little bit better, to fix the energy within those households. Because I think a lot of people just assume, ah, I'm in a bad mood or I'm feeling fearful. My dog is only feeling fearful for a second and that's not doing anything. And that couldn't be further away from the truth. There was a study that was published out of Italy at the same time that actually showed that if your dog stayed within those stressful emotions or had a lot of stress within their lives, Anna, they could develop tumors, according to the study. And so if that enough wasn't a driver for me to see, holy gosh, you know, I really got to clean up the sort of the stress within the environment. I, you know, I don't want to basically demise or be detriment to my dog's health span. The other part of that was we got to sit down with Dr. Lena Roth from Sweden. And those researchers were able to show that not only when you're churning cortisol over a short period of time, but if you're a person who has long-term stress, and you're, you know, you're putting off a lot of cortisol throughout your lifetime, your dog will actually sync up to your own cortisol levels. It's almost like your dog synchronizes with you immediately. So even though you think, hey, I might be stressful, my dog's happy-go-lucky, not according to those researchers, your dog will become you, the mirror of you. So if there was ever a reason for somebody to sort of better their emotions, maybe doing some yoga, meditation, walking through the forest, whatever your gig is, and you love your dog, and I know everyone does, what better way to fix you so you can fix your dog? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it does put a different spin on that old expression. You know, dogs are like their owners. They really are. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. So true. But, you know, what I, uh, one part of the book that I did love was all this recent research on indoor, you know, volatile organic compounds and endocrine disruptors, being a bit technical here, but um, not much research has really been done on how, for example, wood floors, okay, they're really popular, right? Um, and they are over here in the UK, everyone's got wood floors. And apart from being very slippy, which can <laughs> definitely, um, uh, not help the physical side of things with dogs. They can pull muscles and over time build muscular lesions that won't help as a dog ages, of course. So that's one way of keeping dogs young, have runners on your wood floor. But for me, it was the realization when I was doing my study that these wood floors, Karen, Rodney, are full of glue, which is full of formaldehyde, right? And I just moved into um, and this cottage in the country and I'd ripped up the carpet because I knew already that wasn't the greatest thing in the world and I put down these it was wood but engineered wood so then in my study I, I I don't know if you guys remember this study it was a Japanese study it's old 2010 but it said that if you put black tea bags or around you know on the wood floor you know dry ones not soaked tea <laughs> the black tea would absorb the formaldehyde from the atmosphere by something incredible like 80 percent so Anna had all these black tea bags scattered <laughs> all over my home you know you can imagine Imagine. But it's interesting how sometimes very simple solutions come out of some of these great studies. Have you found this more recently as well? Oh man, there's so much research that's out there so right much now. Research. I mean, you know, we've 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 been touching on this. You know, this has been um, this has been something that's very, been very important to Dr. Becker and myself, and I'm sure Karen will touch on it as well. You know, she Karen always says it. You know, dogs are little swiffers. Your cat's like a little Swiffer. They go up and they just basically clean everything off the floors. From the new floors that you lay down, 
even to the point that it attaches to the outside of your house, there was also a study that showed people with treated decks. You know, everybody wants their decks to last as long as possible. That your treated deck, the chemicals that comes off of, come off of a treated deck were sometimes up to four times the safe levels that have accumulated in the urine or in the blood of dogs and cats, according to uh, a study that we were citing a while. Oh, gosh, I think the study came out in like, 2020 and I know we did a small podcast on it but there's so many things today Anna that people put on their floors like take the wood floor for example how are you cleaning your wood floors right I mean there's chemicals and scented chemicals that carry so many uh, things called phthalates within them new study that just actually published last week showed that shampoos and scented products will actually shorten human lifespan because of the phthalates that are in them and this never couldn't hold more true for dogs and cats. I know the New York State Health Department posted uh, two years ago that when they analyzed the urine of dogs and cats, they found 21 different phthalates in their blood because we want a clean home, especially now during the pandemic. Nobody has been cleaning their homes more in all of time than during these last couple <laughs> of years because people are spending more time in their homes. Yeah, yeah. The homes yeah. are stinky, right? Let's say you got a lot of kids, kids that are playing like hockey and soccer or football on your side of the world and all these different types of sports. Homes are stinkier than ever. People are using more air fresheners than they have ever been before. Well, those air fresheners, those VOCs, as you mentioned earlier, volatile organic compounds, those are streamlining within homes, scented air fresheners, sprays, candles. People are, they'll take scented products and they spray their dog's beds because the beds smell terrible. Mm. They'll spray the collars. All of these things are accumulating within our pets and holy smokes, you wanna talk about how to shorten your dog's lifespan? It's things like that. But Dr. Becker, there's so many more things we could touch on when it comes to chemicals. You did a very good job. I will just add in that um, humans wear protective clothing and oftentimes at least socks, but most importantly, we tend to shower fairly regularly. We do something to remove environmental contaminants off of our bodies. Dogs and cats have a substantially higher, what we call in the book, body burden of environmental chemicals because they lay on them. They lick them. Any product in your home that you are cleaning, anything that you are cleaning your, your home with will end up eventually inside your dog and cats. So you want to choose your home cleaning products very wisely. You want to choose uh, the, the products that you're bringing into your home. When you use up your toxic products, switch to green products. You want to be cautious about whatever you're spraying in the home and read the ingredients. If it says to call poison control or do not inhale, you have to recognize your dog isn't reading and he will inhale it. So if I think just being aware of the fact that we live in a pretty darn toxic environment right now. All of us do. Even those of us that try and be as green as possible, our dog's chemical loads are substantially higher be, unless you're able to buy organic couches and organic carpets and organic you know, chemical-free paints. It's just impossible to, to eliminate it. So one of the things that we do is recognizing we're not going to panic about the fact that our dogs are kind of trapped in these environments. If you have black mold in your home, you need to be doing something to improve air quality, get an air purifier that filters out black mold spores. If you are smoking, go outside and smoke. If you are using all chemical cleaners, switch to organic cleaners. If you have a, a couch that has been treated with a flame retardant spill chemical um, stain remover, you know, a scotch guard type product that we know uh, plays into endocrine disrupting capabilities in mammalian bodies, you can throw an organic sheet over where your dog lays on the couch. 
There are easy, simple things you can do as well as supplementation. In fact, many of the AP-ish vegetables like carrots and celery, fennel, some of these veggies actually do a fantastic job of removing some of these toxic compounds from our bodies. So between being cognizant of what we're buying and putting in and around our homes and then doing damage control, recognizing, yep, I can put a filter on my water and yes, I can get an air purifier, but I can also feed foods that help clean up any contaminants that my pets have ingested. Those are empowering ways to do simple, easy things to help reduce the body burden. Mm. And talking about food, so Karen, let's, uh, you know, a big proportion of the book is about diet, you know, um, Hippocrates said, you know, let medicine be thy food and food be thy medicine. And he also said that when you're sick, don't eat. So it's quite a lot to talk about. Now, we are what we eat. So how come 80% roughly of the, the global dog population in the West are still eating very, very overly processed food that's kind of generically known as kibble? So that is because the professionals, the go-to people that you trust and empower to partner with you to create healthier animals, blessed veterinarians, which are good people that love animals dearly. When we went to medical school, we were taught in school that there is a scientifically formulated all-in-one food that you can start your beloveds on from birth, and you can feed them this all-in-one formula until death, and it contains everything that they need. That is what we are taught in veterinary school. And we graduate assuming that that information is absolutely correct. In fact, Anna, veterinarians are the last remaining group of health and wellness professionals to still advocate feeding an ultra processed, highly refined diet from birth to death. No other nutritionist, pediatrician, wellness platform, medical association in the world is recommending this advice, except veterinarians. Now, this is not an attack on my profession. I love my colleagues and I love my profession, but the training, Anna, is outdated and the training is partially being perpetuated to continue feeding only ultra refined foods because veterinary schools receive much of their partnership funding from pet food companies that support those institutions. So there's a very intimate relationship between ultra processed pet food companies and every veterinary school in the world. And those relationships will be prohibitive of teaching anything other than those highly refined diets as being the go-to source for gold standard nutrition because of that very intimate partnership. Mm. So really this is an educational campaign from the ground up. This is pet parents saying, Hey, I, you know, my pediatrician said, decrease the amount of snack food, junk food, and get my kids to eat something fresh every day. And wellness, proactive functional medicine, veterinarians are saying the same thing. We're saying, Hey, listen, it makes sense to start a conversation in the veterinary profession that we understand that this has been ongoing advice since veterinarians became veterinarians 150 years ago, that maybe it's time that we begin shifting our thought on food to include a diversity, which means eating the same food over and over may not be the most amazing choice for our, our animals, microbiomes. And B, is there a chance that feeding only ultra refined foods that have been through high heat processing a multitude of times, is there a chance that that may not be ideal nutrition. That's the conversation, Anna, that veterinarians like myself are interested in having. And it's going to take time because it's a paradigm shift, but it's happening as you can see reflective by the popularity of not just this book, but the growing popularity of the fresh food movement. It's the fastest growing segment of the pet food industry. 
Sure. And driven, I think, by, you know, the young people, the millennials who are perhaps a little bit more aware than the older generation too, on, you know, the power of food to be medicine, really. But, you know, I've fed my dogs raw, uh, raw, balanced and complete meals now for over 20 years. And it was interesting reading in the book how the scientists that you were interviewing were comparing how raw can help a lot, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, <laughs> Finland was very, very famous. Finland, for we love the Finnish, because, you know, I'm half Swedish, so I love all the Scandinavian research, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so progressive, so progressive and such common sense. And it's it's a little painful that the amazing Swedes have to prove common sense, but I am so thankful that they did. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry, Rodney, I cut you off. Anna Hjelm impressed Rodney. <laughs> Oh, Anna Ham Bjorgman impressed a lot of people. I'd say they probably impressed the entire world. But, you know, my favorite study to come out of Finland, and, you know, I've talked about it before, Anna, was the one uh, not posted long ago. I think it was in November of 2020 where they wanted to compare dry food and raw, uh, raw food with dogs with allergies and, you know, which diet was better for the skin. And according to those researchers, when the study concluded that raw food appeared to activate the skin's immune system and as well as the expression of genes that increase antioxidant production or those same genes that have anti-inflammatory effects. So it's so incredible to see the data and the research that's coming out. You know, when we flew to the UK and we sat with one of the most cited microbiologists in the entire world, according to Reuters magazine, Dr. Tim Spector. Um, Dr. Spector from the UK who's doing the twins, I think it's the, the uh, twin study at uh, King's College in the United Kingdom. When we sat with him, he was telling us how important diversity is in the belly. And when they were analyzing humans that had eaten a processed food diet, within like two weeks of just eating processed food, you could shift your entire gut biome to look terrible just in two weeks of eating processed food. So imagine what a lifetime of that would endure onto like a dog or a cat's stomach. So he was very clear that diversity is very important. The Some of the longest lived people have diverse bellies and the same holds true for dogs. And they seen the most diversity, Anna, in dogs that were eating fresh food. I just think the challenges to some of these things are when you start looking around the globe and you start looking at the economy, we're lucky in places like Canada and the United Kingdom, because if you look at the average spend of a pet parent from Canada, from the United Kingdom, and even from Australia, the average pet parent is spending $75 or more. When we were writing this book, you know, that's great research to have because now you have a market to talk about feeding just fresh food to your pet. But when you look at the United States, one of the largest markets in the world, the average pet parent can only spend $23. Mm, yeah, $23 to feed your dog for a month is not a lot of money. So how on earth, when we sat down, Dr. Becker and I is like, okay, we need to talk to, of course, all pet parents, but we also, we can't like cannibalize the majority of pet parents in the United States that can only afford $23. So what can we give them? What can they add to processed food to make it better? And this was the same research that Dr. Anna Helm Bjorgman had from Finland, that just adding a tablespoon of something fresh into a bowl of processed could reduce disease markers by 20%, homocysteine and methionine that they were measuring. Wow, that's quite a that's quite a statement for just ten percent remove ten percent of the biscuits and just put in some nice chopped spinach perhaps or some coriander maybe Karen um, things that you have in your own fridge a bit of tomato tomato um, that you kind bet. of thing. <laughs> And especially, Anna, all of those dented blueberries and maybe the apple that has the bruise spot, 
David Sinclair told us that those dented spots are those fruits and vegetables that have gone through war and gone through a reparative process to fix that wound. That's where the highest polyphenols are. So all the pieces of the veggies and fruits that you're like, "Mm, that's a little, I don't want to eat a little brown dented banana piece, feed it to your dog. The tops and the bottoms of fresh carrots, chop those off, feed those to your dog. We can literally open the fridge. And of course, the things that are on the no-no list, no onions or grapes, and, uh, and no raisins and, and the same parts of the fruits and veggies that you would feed to your kids, you would feed to your dog. So you're not going to feed a whole peach to your dog because the peach pit could be a choking hazard. That doesn't mean the peach is toxic. You're not going to feed the avocado pit to your dog or to your kids. So as long as you're making common sense choices with the pieces and parts, when you open your fridge, Anna, everything is fair game minus the onions and the grapes. You can feed whatever your heart desires out of your fridge. Yes, that was lovely in the book that you did demystify the avocado. You know, I've always said to people, well, you just don't feed the big stone. Um, you know, it's a no brainer. It, it will get stuck. Right. <laughs> but, you know, right. But it, let's quickly talk about the microbiome because this is big in human science at the moment. And you spend a lot of time in the book talking about this and indeed about bacteria. And of course, an issue with processed food, whether it's lightly processed or overly processed, is that it becomes sterile, which does suit, I guess, some people in families. But why is bacteria and dirt and the soil so important? And how can that really talk to your immune system? Because when I did my study, I learned that there are three pillars of health, the immune system, nutrition, and the physical frame. And when one of these pillars starts to kind of crumble, it will affect the other two and, you know, disease then happens. So, but by strengthening your microbiome and the immune system, that's kind of key, isn't it? It's where everything is at, Anna. Your microbiome and the health and the wellness, the diversity, the resiliency of your dog's gut is what ultimately will make or break health span and plays in to lifespan. So I'll just, the first thing that comes to mind is Maggie, the 30 year old Kelpie from Australia. When we asked, uh, her dad, you know, what she ate, she walked around on a farm and yes, she had some kibble out. Brian said he didn't see her eat it often, but it was always out. She ate fruits and veggies from the garden. She got all of their table scraps, but her favorite food, when we asked Brian what Maggie's favorite food was, he said, placenta. And I thought, oh, you know, well, that's not something that uh, all of us have access to, Brian. She said, but listen, also cowtails, fresh cowtails were also a big hit. Um, But she also, of course, walked around and ate things that she found, litters of baby bunnies. She ate whatever she could find. Her microbiome, no one tested it, unfortunately, because I believe that dog would have the gold standard of microbiomes. But that being said, most of us don't have dogs on a farm that have free will and choice to diversify their microbiome by self-selecting the foods that they want to eat. That's a beautiful scenario that most of us don't have available, but we can diversify our dog's microbiome by number one, taking them to the forest in the woods on the weekend, get letting our dogs run in a natural environment with their feet can touch the earth where they can dig and roll in the sand and just be out in nature. It's a beautiful way to offer a bunch of healing aspects when it comes to your dog, moving their body, diversifying microbiome, being able to take in, um, you know, uh, natural sunlight and move their bodies. That's a great way, but also 
prebiotic foods that have amazing fiber content and fermented foods are a great way to expand your dog's microbiome. So if you can't do it um, necessarily by providing an optimal living environment, you can do it through diversifying foods. Mm. And what about raw green tripe as a source of nutrition for the microbiome? Beautiful. Let me tell you, the more what we learned is that you cannot overexpand your dog's microbiome. If you have access to raw green tripe, my goodness, feed it. And the more, even if you don't, or you're in an environment that potentially it's too expensive, or you're in an area that you don't have access, the more bites of diversified foods that your dog has not experienced before every bite of food that they take is allowing their microbiome to adapt and respond to brand new nutrients, fiber sources, and bacterial load. So I think the goal of the book was really to minimize the fear in offering your dogs bits and pieces of healthy, live, fresh foods. We all want to get over the fear of causing any problem. And in turn, allow us to view fresh food bites as every bite that they're eating is building health. Yes. And in the book, you give so many solutions, you know, in part three, it's wonderful. It's like part one and part two kind of highlight, oh gosh, oh no, I didn't do that, did I? And all of these questions, but part three, you know, there's solutions. So everyone can now go into fifth gear in in part three and make changes. And they're not very difficult. It's like thinking about things like mushrooms, (laughs) one of my favorite um, ingredients and, and learning from you guys how important adding just normal button mushrooms that you get in in the supermarket, right, can make uh, a massive difference to your dog's health. Yeah, and this came out of a a human-based study where they were doing research on those that ate mushrooms, and I believe it was a few times a week, and a cup a week saw a 45% decrease in the likelihood of the development of cancer. I have the biggest fascination and the biggest crush on mushrooms, Anna. I can't <laughs> tell you. Just even the dog research that, that's out on, on mushrooms. Like, in fact, in that study, even if people were buying white button mushrooms from a can, I mean, I just canned mushrooms just seem to gross me out on all aspects. But regardless, there was still benefit to the humans that were eating canned mushrooms. So mushrooms all around can do some pretty magical things in science. Uh, One of the ones that we, you know, we've been talking about a lot lately, turkey tail mushroom, and the study that came out of uh, Penn State, my God, like that study was mind blowing to me. Hemangiosarcoma, one of the most aggressive cancers in the entire world, according to some 86 days is usually the average lifespan of how long a poor dog will live if developed with hemangiosarcoma. Those researchers from the vet school in Penn State, they added turkey tail mushroom in a controlled study to a bowl of kibble to dogs. The one dogs on one panel, well, of course, they lived around to the 86 day mark. And those were the dogs that just ate plain kibble. But the other panel of dogs that had turkey tail mushroom added to their kibble, they lived on average, some of these dogs, I should say, lived over one year longer than the other control group just by adding turkey tail mushroom. So like if you ever have a dog with hemangiosarcoma and turkey tail mushroom is not in your toolbox, my gosh, you are missing out. But there's multiple studies to show, Anna, that turkey tail mushroom does a whole bunch of things. And one of the main things it does is it helps regulate insulin. So one of the reasons why cancer researchers will say it's so awesome. Now there's components inside turkey tail mushroom like glutathione, and there's a lot of research on that, spermidine, which a ton of research is there. Ergothionine, where mm. there's a ton of research. The 
a lot of these components are incredible for helping to promote cell cleanup, like autophagy. Um, there's another, spermidine is also responsible for cleaning out zombie cells. This new term that a lot of people are talking about, senescent cells in your body. These are, this is something that we want to focus on in the book that not a lot of people are talking about. Of course, a lot of people will talk about healthy cells and cancer cells, but what the heck are zombie cells? These are cells in your body that are just sitting there. They're not doing anything. They're not promoting any type of health, but in fact, they're just releasing inflammation on a day-to-day -day basis, causing chaos in the body. And according to scientists, they are very hard to kill off. But the spermidine that's found in the way of mushrooms can actually go in there and convince the body to dismantle those zombie cells that are just sitting inside your dog and in our bodies as well. So mushrooms are incredible, uh, like I had mentioned. For, oh, yeah, and one last study. i got so many studies to talk about when it comes to insulin. But mushrooms also help regulate uh, obesity. They found that dogs that were overweight, that when mushrooms were added to a bowl of pet food, that they helped reduce weight loss in dogs because of the insulin control. Well, yes. And of course, obesity, you know, we can't do this podcast without touching on it. It's, um, you know, epidemic levels, isn't it? Um, in the West anyway, both in people and, and in dogs. So going back to that, where we were saying, you know, there's the, the contagion between dogs and their owners. Yes. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, arguably, certainly from where I'm sitting, my personal view is that feeding raw and functional fresh ingredients surely helps keep a dog slim you're spot on with well-loved dogs in the west uh are suffer from the exact same nutritional issues as their owners we are all overfed and undernourished as westerners and the downside about being overfed and undernourished is that in addition to the nutritional deficiencies that compound disease, the overweight and obesity issues also, of course, in and of themselves, compound disease. And dogs, unfortunately, have not escaped that wrath because traditionally speaking, the ultra processed foods that we feed them are incredibly high in refined carbohydrates. And because dogs don't have a carbohydrate requirement, we are not nourishing their body in a way that allows their metabolic machinery to function optimally. And when that doesn't happen, the end result is metabolic chaos. So the name of the game is keeping your dog's insulin and glucose levels low and steady. So there's some key common sense things you would do. Does exercise keep insulin and glucose low and steady? You bet. And our dogs are wired as athletes. They need a whole lot more movement exercise, rigorous running, playing outside time than most of us are capable of providing, but we need to attempt to try. And looking at the macronutrient load in your dog food is really important. Carbohydrates will not be listed, but you can do a simple equation. Dogs really fare best with less than 10% carbs in their diet. And the average bag of ultra processed food is anywhere between 30 and 60%. So nourishing our dogs with so many empty calories coming from carbs result in a whole host of inflammatory and degenerative predispositions that we can manage just by knowing more and making better food choices. And gut bacteria. Yeah, and gut bacteria. But I just want to say, you know, what does upset me a little bit in all the press and, and vets certainly in the UK are saying this now that dogs are omnivores and many are actually 
claiming that dogs can also be vegans. Um, at this point, my head might start spinning because <laughs> the worry is with that is that we're going back to feeding them the carbs, which ultimately they're not, you know, biologically and physiologically designed to thrive on at all. And then that makes inflammation happen. So this omnivore thing, was that the 2013 Axelman study that I learned about, which was Swedish, oh, sigh, that uh, proved that because dogs had some amylase in their system, the, the starch digesting enzyme, that they were now totally omnivorous. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms in itself there. I, I was, I had yelled... <laughs> I jumped out with the word just gut biome very quickly right before that question. <laughs> if, I, if I was to digress it super quickly, gut biome is also critical, Anna. I know that there's a lot of people out there that are fresh feeders, that are feeding their animals fresh foods, but they still struggle with weight. So I would highly recommend that they get a gut test because, of course, if you've had a dog that's gone through a series of antibiotics here in North America, and I don't think, I don't think that happens in the United Kingdom, but... Cows antibiotics. Are, well, well, antibiotics in the way of meats. So here in, in North America, cows are purposely fed antibiotics to put weight on them, right? Because if you destroy the gut bacteria of a cow, when you feed it, it actually starts to grow thicker. It puts on more weight. So they purposely kill off the gut bacteria. So there's a lot of dogs out there that pet owners are struggling to get weight off. But if you sent in a gut analysis test, if you work with your vet or you sent something off, I know there's companies here in North America where you could send off your your guts and your dog's gut analysis, they could show you that your dog might be missing like key bacteria like megamonis or phacobacterium, things that regulate your dog's immune system. So you may struggle switching on all these diets and the gut bacteria was off. But to go back to your, your original question about veganism in pets and the struggle there, I mean, that's a giant can of worms that, you know, it's where human philosophies collide with animal philosophies, right? It's where we want to take, um, you know, Canis lupus and make it into something else, bring it into another species or another category. There was articles, Anna, here that were printed from your side of the pond. And I don't know how factual they are. Maybe you could tell me about this. We know, he, I saw the New York Post recently post that I believe, I think it's like 27,000 pounds in fine if you try to make your dog yes. a vegan. Is that correct? Yeah, this was um, launched just a couple of weeks ago. I did tweet about it. Um, and it's the British Veterinary Association teaming up with uh, the Blue Cross charity, welfare charity, rescue and welfare charity, saying that if you're discovered to be feeding your dog a vegan or vegetarian diet, you'll be fined 20,000 pounds. However, mm. they came on the radio show that I do and we, we talked about it and, you know, they're never going to be able to enforce this. And equally, they, you know, maintain that a complete balanced, you know, um, science uh, prescription diet is still the, the best way forward, as that does contain a little bit of meat, arguably not enough or the right type of meat. But there's so much to talk about, you guys, and I'm conscious of time here. All I will say to my listeners, please get this book. It's available everywhere you get books online and in bookshops. It is the number one best-selling paperback by the New York Times. So the New York Times number one best-selling paperback at this moment. It's already gaining traction with the Sunday Times paperback list and you're climbing the charts. The Forever Dog will be number one in the UK. We are a nation of animal lovers or we're supposed to be in the UK. There's so much to talk about. So maybe you guys would come on again and do another one. Let's do it. That would be so wonderful. I was going to say, you know, we do have a lot more that we should be discussing, but how about if we we just try for round two. 
Karen, it's just really been an honor. I feel, you know, in awe. Um, so thank you. I mean, I wanted to mention Rawhide Chews and how bad they are and everything, but we'll save it all for a, another episode. I really hope you'll come back. You got it. Absolutely. We will come back. This has been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you both. Um, this has been delightful. We can't wait for the next time. Well, that's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes, there was lots of food for thought, and we'll definitely be having Karen and Rodney back on again. What's that? Yes, you're right. It is time for Wolf of the Week. (coughs) Take the time to learn how to give your dog the optimal diet to ensure they're with you as long as possible. (coughs) I hope you all enjoyed it. And if you did, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you, of course, to Dr. Karen Becker and to Rodney Habib. And the links to buy The Forever Dog are in the show notes. I really can't recommend this book highly enough. Thanks to Mike Hansen and to Pod People for all the production and the theme music as ever. For more about me, I'm on Anna Webb Dogs or visit my website, annaweb.co.uk. What's that, Mr. Binksy? Yes, we will be back in your feed next Sunday. So please follow us on your favourite podcast app so you'll never miss another show. Bye for now.